All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Liberty Portal podcast. Back here again in our beautiful studio in Bozeman, Montana. I'm here with the usual cast of characters. David Rand, how are you, sir? Howdy, everybody. Doing great. That's all you got for the people? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want to hear from me? Yeah. <laughs> I want to know. I want to know how your life is. What you've been up, up to? Oh yeah. So I just got done uh, with a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu competition and had a great time. Three golds and gi, no gi, and the white belt absolute. Obviously, I'm a newbie. I'm not good at it, but I had a great time. I think I think you're underselling your ability and your knowledge of Jiu-Jitsu. I I've seen you go down the rabbit hole on YouTube, uh, and I've living room grappled with you a little bit too. And you you know you, well you know more than me. I'll say that <laughs> I know that for certain. Henri, how are you, buddy? I am great, as usual. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for bringing all these delicious beverages, yeah. by the way. Cheers. No problem. Yeah. Oh, hit me. Here's yeah. to you guys. Cheers to you, Kyle, in the back. Hello. I'm in the back pushing buttons. I have not won any gold medals, though, unfortunately. And there's still time. Yeah. There's still a lot of time. You got to come join us in the morning. Mm, yeah, I've been trying to get Joe. <laughs> maybe if I get both of you in. There's just something about physical activity at five in the morning. Actually, so I just did a chronotype test. You guys familiar with chronotypes? No. So there's different uh, sleep patterns and sort of patterns of like um, circadian rhythm and metabolism. And they're apparently, you know, they're all like animal categories, right? Lion, bear, um, dolphin, wolf, I think are the... I didn't come up with it. It sounds very scientific. Oh, it's super, super scientific. (laughs) Anyways, I did one of these quizzes because I was curious about what my chronotype is because it affects like when you should get up, when you should go to bed. I determined that I am a bear chronotype, which most people are, uh, where I do best going to bed, uh, shooting for a five REM cycle sleep pattern, right? So what this thing said I should do is go to bed at 1110, fall asleep by 1130, and then I wake up around seven. And I get a full, perfect five, five 90 minute REM cycles and I, I feel great. So I've been doing it all week and it works. Hmm. I feel awesome. Nice. So long answer to, I'm not getting up at five. <laughs> you just go to bed at eight and then wake up at five. No, <laughs> <laughs> like I, I got could, a life. Oh, I, wow, I could fair, do that. I, I could probably do that. But yeah, I do. I also do a lot of late night things, right? Like I play music and so mm. switching playing a show on a weekend to getting to going to bed at eight is Oof. yeah, I bet my sleep regularity score goes way down. I'm <laughs> not a fan of that. My muscles are just for show. He's just full of air. <laughs> he just, he pumps up in the morning. <laughs> that is not true. Henri is a strong dude. In fact, you did some powerlifting before, I've, right? I, I dabbled. Yeah. Nothing, nothing too crazy. There's, there's 15 year old girls that can like put me to shame these days, but, but they're know, all on trend. So. People are so strong right now. Like it's crazy. It's all the roids, dude. Yeah. Are we not going to talk about the trans athlete thing right now? Is that, is that what we're talking about? <laughs> oh. Just diving straight in. <laughs> there actually was a, uh, a, a guy who, um, just recently set a bunch of records as a, as a female, um, to prove a point, you know, to just to show how absurd this everything is, but like a fully bearded, you know, um, very strong experienced power lifter just i think in the uk if i'm not mistaken hmm. just uh set all the female records see well we're, we're going there so we're going to go there i think to set the stage for this we should just i think we all agree that trans individuals deserve to compete and have the ability to compete as the gender that they identify as that's fine live your life the way you want to that should not come at the expense of, of women's sports. And, and, and it's interesting. You're not seeing any records set by, uh, by trans males who were originally biological females, right? You're, like they're not beating biological men at men's sports. You're only seeing it go the other way. Right. Am I wrong about that? 
I think you're, you're right about, I, I think there is, um, in distance swimming, I think women have a, a, an advantage. Oh, interesting. Uh, uh, distance heard. running too. I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah. So th- are there records being, I don't, I don't know of any, records, I don't think in the trans but, space, it's just yeah. that the top long distance running, uh, like ultra endurance running, a lot of them are women. Yeah. So would it, would it just make sense for there to be like a separate category for trans athletes and cycling too? Cycling something, uh, but men's, yeah. women's, trans. I would, I, I would actually say probably a, a better way to think about it is just compete by like uh, skill level. You know, let you know men and women can you know, like uh, like mixed doubles. You know, in tennis, like men and women compete all the time, or, or golf or whatever. Like jujitsu, white belt, blue belt, purple belt. Yeah, you, just, you get a certain yeah. ranking based on <laughs> yeah. your average ability but or, it's like you would say like regardless of gender yeah like like the the, the belt ranking system would be good but you just said like you if it's high school sports you have your your a team b team all the way down to whatever level you want to cut it off at and you would probably have mostly mostly female in the you know lower skill levels and mostly mostly men in the higher skill levels but yeah. they just compete against whoever they're you know appropriately skilled to compete against at least one observation that i've made is that i'm perfectly okay i I think women have and trans women and trans men have the right to be able to say in this contractual agreement on a single competition to enter into that and to compete right it just gets really difficult once you get to ranking and what's fair with ranking right so um in combat sports uh if a woman wants to fight a man or a trans woman and a man or whatever uh, fine you know, like have at it, you know, I think those two should be able to enter a voluntary contract and do that. It's just when you get to comparing in a ranking system, like a, you know, of any kind, what, who's really the best at mixed martial arts or wrestling or any of those sorts of things. And it definitely, um, I think women who are saying, Hey, this, this makes it so that we disappear, right? Because men and women are not the same biologically, uh, bone density, tendon strength, um, there's lots of different ways where the muscular development, yeah, well, testosterone, it, because, because hormones matter, right? There's a reason why steroids are prohibited in most of these sports is because it does make a difference with the signal in your body is for how your body expresses itself. Um, and men have a, an advantage with having seven times the testosterone of a female, uh, from the time they're very, you're actually quite young. We're talking only like 10, 11, 12 years old. You're getting a very different body input. So, um, you know, at recent competition, uh, my son also competed uh, in jujitsu and went up a, it was n- him and a bunch of girls and he got spanked, right. <laughs> uh, on quite a few of those matches and he, he drawed one out and it was his first competition. I'm really proud of him. Got cool. a bronze, Good for him. but he, um, but it was definitely, I, you didn't get the sense that it was, you know, that it was unfair, but by the time you're in somewhere in puberty, that's that dynamic changes substantially when it comes to strength and ability to apply force to somebody else. Yeah. And well, I mean, yeah, Go ahead. There's this story that just happened today, actually. Um, swimmer Riley Gaines, who was deprived of a medal, came in second to Leah Thomas, uh, former swimmer. Um, she was on a speaking tour. She was in San Francisco at San Francisco State University. And allegedly she was attacked by like kind of an angry uh, mob of, of trans advocates who, I mean, in the video, I don't know if you've seen the video, they're 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 shouting obscenities at her. I mean, she's like being hustled down a hallway by security, like to get out of there. It did not seem like a very t- uh, tolerant environment to say the least. And I think it, it, it brings up an interesting question around how should we approach the way that 
the trans movement is is leveraging what seems like more often actual violence against people who are speaking criticisms of some aspects of their movement or their their um, their worldview. How how I mean they're they're leveraging real violence against people who they're saying are are speaking violence against them. It seems like a concerning trend. I mean, what 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 do we see? What do we see going on here, Henri? What are your thoughts? Well, uh, there's always been this trend of y- your speech is violence and my speech is advocacy, um, and y- yeah, th- this this goes back all the way to like the Battle of Berkeley, or even probably before. You know, my Milo Yiannopoulos and Ann Coulter went to Berkeley to give a speech and turned into a huge riot outside. Um, and you know, because you can't, the, the shouting down dissenting voices, um, has been kind of that MO for a long time. And, and I think even in other cultures, you know, we saw this in, in Mao's cultural revolution, um, you know, speech on one side is approved and speech on the other side is violence and violence on one side is, is considered a type of of speech in a way because it's, it's a protest like you can burn down a whole city during the George Floyd riots and that's a that's a mostly peaceful protest but if somebody has a, a wrong think opinion then that is a type of violence yeah I, I want to differentiate too that one trans activist hitting this woman is is wrong and terrible but we don't want to paint all trans activists with that brush plenty of people are in that space who want a peaceful movement um it would be like Black Lives Matter. Plenty of people who were peaceful, wanted a peaceful civil rights like movement. And then obviously that is, you know, has a lot of noise in the system the minute there's violence and then they get associated with that. And then they're like, I still want to support this thing I believe in, but I don't associate with those guys. Just like if there was, you know, I don't associate at all with anarchists who do terrible, violent things. Right. Of course. Um, I would, but that doesn't mean we might not share a philosophy, um, of self ownership or something like that. I just disagree with them with about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, I think that's, that's an important distinguishment and I don't like at least one dynamic I don't like is people trying to draw some line between the school shooting and this as an example of like trans people are getting violent when it's, these are two different examples of people who did terrible violent things, but that doesn't mean that all the trans movement is that. Of course not. And I'm certainly not meaning to suggest that. I hope hope that, yeah, yeah, that wasn't misconstrued. Yeah. There was just another attempted or, um, what's the word they used? You know, uh, uh, someone suspected of planning a school shooting arrested Mm. in Colorado Springs turned in by, I believe it was his sister, um, trans person. I mean, again, it's not right. an indictment of all trans people. Of course right. not. I mean, that's completely antithetical to the whole libertarian movement. We want to treat everybody as individuals, but there is it's seeming to be some kind of trend developing where it's okay to use violence on, uh, from this perspective, but not on this perspective. And I, I think that everyone, anyone should unequivocally disavow violence against anyone for for their opinion it's mm-hmm. just an opinion these are just ideas we need to be adults in this country to tackle all these complex issues that we have we need to be doing it peacefully and and justly and not trying to just you know strong arm uh people into silence so that we can have our way uh through you know wielding the the force of the state to get our ideology 
impressed upon everyone else. That's just my opinion. Yeah. And, and to get into the, the legal part of that too, the heckler's veto is what you're talking about, right? Where you shout down someone in order to prevent them. You physically <clears throat> intimidate someone in order to prevent them from speaking. That is not, that, that is protected speech, right? The state can protect people from intimidation, right? And that, that is a just role, right? So it, I think there is, um, of course, without, there's a huge difference between saying, you know, we're going to go to this place to protest it versus we're going to go to this place and mob it and actually force someone into a room and then hold them there and actually ask for ransom at one point for yeah. that person to get out of that room. Those sorts of the, those which sorts is of what methods. they did with, with, uh, with Riley Gaines. Riley yeah. Gaines. Yeah. Which, which is horrifyingly bad. That's a, t- that's a, and not only that, it's a bad methodology, right? I mean, like I'm, I'm on your side. You're just not on your side at that point, right? If you, if you really don't like that philosophy or what, whatever she's saying, uh, and, and, and oppose her, you are losing allies the minute you put in those tactics. Right. It is not a good strategic direction, like you're saying, to bring more people into your your camp, onto your side of, of an argument. It, mm-hmm. it doesn't look good <laughs> to be chasing anyone out of a school who's just there to speak. And I mean, it, and it's happening more and more often. It's a product of the polarized world that we're living in, and it sucks. Mm. And I wish that we could all just grow up a little bit and... Uh, maybe zoom out and look at all the things going on in the world and figure out a way to get along just a little bit better and have some more civil conversations like, Mm. you know, like we're doing right here. (laughs) Totally agree. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Zesty Beverages. They're on a mission to unfuck the standard American diet by crafting drinks with fewer calories and more nutrients from real food. Their lineup of delicious offerings now includes Electric Peak Yerba Mate, postbiotic sodas, keto-friendly, ready-to-drink margaritas, and hard teas. Wondering what a postbiotic soda is? Well, head on over to ZestyBev.com to learn more and find a retailer near you. Once again, check them out online at ZestyBev.com. That's Z-E-S-T-Y-B-E-V.com. Something I'll add to this is that there's a concept in Marxist thought called good trouble, which is which that quote has been starting to get layered around recently from a lot of politicians and stuff. And it's very much in this wheelhouse of you try to shout people down, but you're always like, but I'm not being violent. I'm not being violent until the other, until the other side is kind of provoked into violence. And then it's an all out assault. Um, and I'm seeing a lot of politicians these days, AOC said it, a few others that are using this term good trouble. Now it's just Mm. thinking about the game theory at large. Important. Very interesting. You don't want to be a foil for your opposition, right? That's why it's so important that people who engage in the space carefully articulate what they think is true without engaging in generalizations, without engaging in um, work that says, oh, I see a pattern and this pattern holds true for everybody because it turns you into someone who looks like a point you're not trying to make, right? Right. Or additionally that if someone shouts at you, you react calmly, coolly, and you look like the adult and they look like a child, right? How many reaction videos do you have people you know, some campus speaker, the person's freaking out and the campus speaker just calmly dissects the argument and they mm-hmm. look good. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I think the, um, the right, if they want to be heard here needs to be careful. Sure. And, and if the left wants to gain more ground back from what they're losing from this, I, and I do think politically they're losing ground here, um, is to restrain that and to hold accountable the people on their own side who are stepping out of bounds and trying to implement a heckler's veto. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, we got some new, <clears throat> interesting news uh, about the Chinese spy balloon. It's been out of the cycle for a little while, but I want to want to pivot to that because uh, our own Senator Steve Daines has 
has brought some new stuff to light. Yeah. So uh, the early this week, the eight NBC News came out with an anonymous report anonymously. Right. Sorry. There's an anonymous source in the in the White House has told them that the spy balloon was beaming back information back to the Chinese, that it floated, uh, that it, that it that they found that they discovered it was before it got into our territory, that it was there, right, that we knew. So uh, that was one of the questions we asked when we covered it. We're like, when did we know? Like it flew all the way down from Alaska. How did how did we wait that long? And what it looks like uh, when and what, one of the interesting things that happened later this week, it's like yesterday, uh, there was a, a top secret briefing of senators, uh, Tester and Danes were both there. And uh, both those both of them came out and gave reactions. Uh, the Aleutian Islands was where we first discovered this balloon coming off the coast or, of it was first detected. Yeah. Wow. So that's crazy, right? That they did nothing about it. If it were a spy balloon Two that it took all the way down to Montana before some photographer took a picture of it and everyone noticed that's pretty wild, uh, that the, uh, that the government functionally lied and said, uh, yeah, it's just a thing. We don't know, you know, and then lastly, um, the speculation on both sides, one article says that, it, it isn't clear that they had the state department t- told NBC news anonymously. I'm going to say that forever. Cause that Seymour Hirsch thing. Cause it ticks me <laughs> off that it was like, Oh, use anonymous sources when everyone does when reporting out of the white house. Um, they said anonymously that it wasn't certain whether or not they were being beaming back information in real time back to Beijing. When Dan's came out, he was like, they were beaming back information from Beijing. So that's, that's a really interesting component of that too. Cause like we don't actually know what the capabilities were still. We still don't know almost anything. Um, as the general public, because the government's holding all these secrets. And then additionally that we don't really know why they delayed doing anything about it until it crossed the entire continental United States and then shot it down. Yeah. There's so many question marks. Yeah. So many questions. It remains to be a huge question. I I do think uh, coverage of it should be a focus for the media because it's, it's indicative of a moment, right? That we need to, be careful of, right? If we learned anything from nine 11, something happens that scares us. We need to, that's when we need to, the fears, fears, the mind killer, right? Mm-hmm. Learn a little Herbert Dune, <laughs> the Dune Her- guy. <laughs> what was the guy's name? Oh, shit. Who wrote Dune? You're the Dune fan. I know. I know. should know this. Uh, uh, Herbert Howard. Herbert. Herbert is right. But why am Herbert. I blanking on Herb? Just our buddy Herb who wrote uh, Dune. our guy Herb. Yeah. I think that's his last name, actually. Wadib. Frank Herbert. Frank, Frank Herbert. Thank you. Oh, Thank you. God, we go. Frank Herbert. Same tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but... Uh, Fear is the mind killer, though. Yeah. I mean, it causes us to do really stupid stuff. It causes us to react, right? right? We get out of our rational brain where we have space to think and make calculated decisions, mm-hmm. and we do ra- ra- irrational, stupid stuff. Right. And I think there's, there are legitimate um, criticisms of the Biden administration in this space, but I, I also don't think it's like, well, if something comes into the United States, you know, airspace, we just blow it up. Right. That's also a, like kind of a dumb way to approach it, too. I mean, it's it's, you know, if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything is a nail. Right. Right. That kind of thing. It's just like, well, one size fits all solution. Right. When it plays well in the media. Yeah. Right. Because people have that fear of of, of that. Um, oh, another one is uh, although we don't have any evidence of this as public, uh, Danes does make the claim that it did go over Maelstrom and over the nuclear silos in Montana. Danes makes that claim. Yes. So from this briefing that he got, it seems like he got some information that did substantiate that. Yeah. He makes that claim. So, I mean, there was speculation about that. I saw, I've still, I mean, obviously we don't have evidence, 
of that. Um, and if this were the Trump administration, I won't say is claimed without evidence, you know, <laughs> that this is a, but, um, I do think it's, it's interesting. I think it's, I think it's something that, um, yeah, as, as we develop it, this could be an area where we're seeing the government lie to us again, uh, and be unclear or at least secretive in a way that drives fear because the more we don't know the, <laughs> because they don't want accountability, we won't know. So then it's going to be any balloon flies over the American people are going to freak out. Yeah. Was there a component of this that has something to do with, you know, the Biden administration not wanting to uh, provoke China by just blowing it up? I mean, is there any because I know there like there are ties between the Biden mm-hmm. administration or members of the Biden family and there's there are financial records coming to light. Allegedly, I believe mm-hmm. that link, you know, Chinese entities and members of the Biden family. Like, is there is there something here? To it. Even better, if, if there was, if it was done to avoid a diplomatic incident, that's an opportunity for the Biden administration. So like, hey, we might have a diplomatic incident here. We're negotiating it and figuring it out. And if they control it, then get it out of here. And if you don't control, we're going to blow it up. Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> you know, if it's an out of control weather balloon of sorts is what they claimed. Um, well, then they, why would they matter? Why would it be an incident if we took it down? Right. Right. Yeah. I didn't like how t- uh, Tim Pool, when this was all happening, was like, they should have shot it down over Montana because there's like nobody up there. I was like, yeah. What's funny is that's actually one thing that Dan said is he said like, yeah, if it was floating over Malmstrom, there's a whole lot of area between Malmstrom and Billings. It's completely, I mean, nowhere. Not like he said, it's the true. biggest risk was some uh, pronghorns or uh, uh, some antelope or some prairie dogs. You yeah. Know? Uh, which is like, that's, that's a fair point. Funny little dust up on Twitter with Dane's a while back, right? Too, where... Um, he posted a profile picture with his wife and a, a pronghorn that <laughs> yeah. she had shot. And there yeah. was, I think there was a rifle in it or something like that. And yeah. he got his account got banned on yeah. Twitter for like a few days. Classic hunting picture that anyone in Montana has probably taken. If you've done any amount of hunting and he got banned from Twitter for violence. My favorite thing was that like everyone else after yeah. that just started posting their hunting pictures as their yeah, profile some, pictures. Some people we know like, you know, posted those same pictures and then also got their accounts. Oh, did they get banned too? Yeah. I think, I think Kendall Cotton. Yeah. No uh, way. Yeah. Kendall got banned. Yeah. The AI, like the AI, AI censorship algorithm, it always triggers for like blood and stuff. So hunting pictures are just commonly hit in that regard. We need Joe Rogan to talk to Elon about that. <laughs> Speaking of other weird stuff that's happened in Montana on Monday, we had a train carrying a shitload of beer derail and spill a bunch of Coors Light into a lake, <laughs> <laughs> which I have to say, uh, is winning the train derailment lottery in the context of like East Palestine. Like, couldn't have really asked for much more. And it's just like the most Montana train derailment I've ever seen. Did you guys, yeah. did you happen to see the article? The funny thing about that is it's actually the second time it's happened. It happened before in 1999 and they called it the silver bullet run or the silver bullet brigade or something like that, where you have all these cores floating down the river and people like fishing them out yeah. and having themselves a nice free cores. It was like the most Montana thing ever. It's like this <laughs> boat of fishermen who were like dipping their nets in the river to pull out 18 packs of cores. I was just like, dude, we are for sure living in a simulation. <laughs> <laughs> but as far as like the pattern recognition of that, I think is interesting, right? Because yeah. now that we've had this balloon, a whole bunch of other balloons got blown out of the sky for who knows what reason. Um, and now the train derailment there, we're seeing these other train derailments. All of a sudden, it's like it stands out to us. Yeah. Um, and I think it's like mastery of that you know, component of your brain that says, oh, there's a pattern. It must be real or substantial or important. Well, it seems even yeah. one step removed from that, though. It's not necessarily just that the public is noticing these patterns. It's that the media, I think, is recognizing, oh, these things are interesting to people. They're getting clicks. They're getting mm. attention. Or per- people in the media are 
having, you know, recognizing these patterns and publishing these various pieces. Right. Because they work, I guess. Yeah, this is like uh, news stories on trail derailments are hot right now. Pump up, <laughs> pump, pump it, yeah. Every derailment of any kind around the country. It's like a thousand a year, and all. Now we're going to get like hit with train derailment stories every couple weeks. Well, so long as most of them are beer and not toxic chemicals, <laughs> that'll work for me. You know. Yeah, it's already cleaned up, so that's that's a good thing. It didn't take long. Uh, it's our, the rail line's already working again, so all will good. That is good. Well, let's see. That, that, that's such a fun story. I don't want to pivot to serious news. It's a Friday. I want to keep it light, you know? Um, but we're going to do it. Uh, let's talk about Syria. Mm. So, uh, people listening might not really be aware that we've been at war in Syria for how long now? Since Obama, the Obama administration. Yeah. Yep. And just recently we had a contractor and five service members killed in Syria like this week. Mm -hmm. What were the circumstances surrounding that? So the uh, accused Iran backed militias are trying to advance their agenda in Syria. The U S is trying to prevent is also they, I'm not sure if they disagree about this is trying to prevent a Sunni new caliphate ISIS so we have about 900 soldiers in northern Syria and some bases up there uh, in order to be there in case ISIS comes back, right? That's kind of like a vampire situation. We're just kind of waiting outside the crypt with a wooden stake. And some garlic. Yeah, right. In case the ISIS comes back. So we have all these soldiers just kind of out there in the middle of nowhere in Syria. Uh, neither, like, probably there's probably I think there's a good case to be made that some of that's like intelligence support for allies on the free Syrian army, which I think is the right one that we're supporting right now. Cause we've changed so many times. I can't remember. Um, and those got, no, that's not wrong. That's wrong. That's, that's the, that's the other side. <laughs> we're doing the Democrat Syrian army. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, that uh, the, our allies in the space providing support. And then additionally that there in case ISIS returns. Now that's, that's a terribly exposed position. Uh, and there's been, you know, very little coverage of the reality that this is like the 70th time that's happened in the last couple of years where there's been an attack and then a counterattack back and forth between Iran based, Iran based militias and backed militias and our troops there, including the, the, the unfortunate death of this contractor and the wounding of five soldiers. Um, and, and it just kind of shows like the American, you know, I don't like using this word because it just triggers so many people, but it's hard to find a better word for it. But empire. Right. The American thing that we do right now by having bases all over the world, 5,000 something bases, including forward operating bases. And uh, I think empires are perfectly the 160 Americana. countries that we're in um, the ongoing operations all over the world to, you know, basically support the war on terror uh, done by other governments on our behalf and everything else that's happening. It, it's it's it exposes us to danger. And this is another example. And that one of the things that frustrates me here is we have this thing that's going on since the Obama administration and no one talks about it. This came out. I saw it. I picked it up, but, and, and, and it said, we should talk about this, but you're not, no one, yeah, I didn't see it. it I imagine the uh, average listener to this podcast right now is like, Oh, I had no idea that happened. It's pretty incredible how desensitized we've all become, you know, or the average American has become, completely unaware of how many conflicts we are currently involved in and have been. I, I don't even, I couldn't name them all. Uh, I mean, but it's, it, it's a handful. Um, I mean, do, do you know, do you have the list? I mean, I, I know I like Syria, even. Somalia, Yemen, um, Libya, Libya. Libya. Uh, I mean, we, we 
got out of Afghanistan. We're supporting operations in Yemen. Uh, so, uh, genocide. We saw, we saw troops in Iraq. Uh, no, 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 I don't think so. But any? the uh, not, um, not any. <laughs> you sure? I imagine there are intelligence uh, in Iraq. <laughs> yeah. there, there aren't some guys just sitting around waiting Troops for... Troops is a different uh, thing. You know? Well, and then, yeah. and then not to mention all the money and, and support that we've sent to Ukraine and, and right. our, our involvement in... Not our, but the U.S. involvement in NATO and, and you know, provoking arguably that that war. Yeah, the proxy uh, involvement, it just goes even further. Oh, man. Right? Yeah, once you include like, that, we're in Indonesia, we're in uh, Africa, we're in Mali. I mean, uh, it's it's all over the place. Um, the, the, and that's, that's one of the real problems of that is, and blowback is the whole theory that we do all these things kind of half cocked. Uh, then when there's a public realization that that's what we're doing, there's a blowback to that thing that raises public awareness as we were doing this, this whole, whole thing. And then it undermines the ability for the intelligence operation community to do their job as they see it. So that like, that's, that's the original theory of blowback as popularized by Ron Paul. I was going to say that is like the concept that shook me out of what was a very mainstream conservative, uh, political worldview was Mm. the idea that, Hey, having troops over in a place and wreaking havoc or, you know, banging in doors and accidentally killing bystanders and innocent civilians causes people to be pissed at you and want to hurt you back. I mean, that Mm. it makes perfect intuitive sense, Mm. but, but a lot of people, I mean, it's easy to get to get stuck in the frame of, but their culture, they need democracy or they need freedom without considering the vast complexity and and cultural differences that may not support a system like that. And obviously, our efforts haven't been very long standing once we've left right. a lot and, of these. And conflicts. not to mention, like, what the hell does bombing the hell out of a place have to do with? you know, instilling democracy. I mean, you know, I sometimes think about just all our petty strife and political bullshit that we deal with and then just realize like, Oh, well I could have been, you know, born in Yemen and the human rights atrocities have been going on over there and just far outweighs anything that we've ever had to, to really grapple with as, as Americans, you know, here at home. Yeah, Brad's Brad's point about the exorbitant privilege of even ha- having ability to use the U.S. dollar and travel abroad and have that be our our home currency, like the 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 power you know that that affords us is pretty exceptional and and very true. You know, as well, just having a stable economy, like there aren't bombs falling in our in our hometown. You know, at least not not today and hopefully not tomorrow. But to grow up in an entirely different you know paradigm where that's just a part of the norm, like what's going on in, you know, Israel and between them and Lebanon and Palestine and all the, everything going on there. Like that's just a completely right. different way to live, you know? Well, it's large and complex. And I think that's one of the reasons we're so desensitized to it is because it's like the world is a large, complex, scary place. And one of the things about being an American is that we are involved in all of it, all of it. Cause we are the global hegemon. Hegemon is a word that they use in foreign policy circles to say, we are the world's superpower. The, the only one. So because we're, the only one we have this responsibility to make sure that the world goes in the right direction. Uh, I think, you know, from our perspective, it should be the other way around, right? That we should realize that we have limited means to be able to uh, pursue a foreign policy end that the United States military can't do anything. They can't create democracy through bombs. Uh, we've been bombing Iraq since the 1990s. Uh, Bill Clinton's first act as president was to bomb a chemical company that was making penicillin in Iraq. 
Yeah. Right. I mean, that's how long we've been there doing stuff. And then we're surprised when uh, the people there aren't big fans of ours. Uh, 500,000 children died from the blockade of Iraq after the um, Saddam Hussein uh, invasion, the Kuwait Iraq War One. Um, how do you how do you ever forgive a country for that? It's like hard to wrap your mind around. Yeah, five hundred thousand children. Right. Imagine that. Like imagine yeah. if COVID harmed little kids. We were very lucky with COVID that it didn't. But imagine if that was. But it wasn't some nebulous virus. It was an actual other country that was forbidding the the importation of sanitary goods that allow you to clean your water supply so that your kids could let, grow up. But instead, five hundred thousand kids died of dysentery. So, like, that's been our actions, but the American people don't know that. They don't realize that that's been the consequences. When masked about it, Madeleine Albright said, well, it's worth it. I I was just going to pull that clip up. Do you want to watch that clip? Please. Well, it just also reminds me of just, you know, like the Orwellian, well, we've always been at war with East Asia. Yeah, yeah, that's another kind of form of desensitization. We have heard that a half a million children have died. I mean, that's more children then died when, when, in, in Hiroshima. And, and, you know, is the price worth it? Well, let me just say that, speaking diplomatically, the world is a mess. I have been to those places, believe me. I have seen people that are dirt poor that then spend money on things that are not healthy. But it is exactly, I think, that out of that difficulty and challenge, it's a huge opportunity. Companies that have the capability of delivering a message that says you can help yourself. You know, is the price worth it? I like the idea of an American product being helpful to people in other parts of the world. I've okay, so she's shilling American say, companies. Well, kind of just worry about ourselves and not worry about everybody else. Okay. That, uh, this, to me, is indicative of this classic like crisis response situation right where she's making such light of the situation and looking at and and i guess on one side you could say glass half full she's looking at the opportunity but it's such a shallow perspective on the gravity of that situation and so like detached not taking responsibility for the fact that it's our blockade keeping those goods out in the first place that are causing these deaths that like that and, and, and could you imagine if you're a Muslim in the Middle East and they're saying the Americans are murdering 500,000 kids, do you want to get on this plane <laughs> and go bomb these towers? Yeah. You know, if you, and if, and, and that's not justifying it, that's saying we're detectives in a murder mystery here and we need to understand the motives of the murderers in order to stop further murders. And that isn't saying that we shouldn't defend ourselves. That isn't saying we shouldn't go after Osama bin Laden for doing the bad thing he did. What that's saying is understand your opponent. And if you're feeding them propaganda by doing evil, terrible things yourself, you invite evil, terrible things. And, and that, that's a great example of blowback. Totally. An awful example, but yeah, well, I mean, it's a, <laughs> I don't mean it's good in the, in the moral <laughs> I <know>. sense. <laughs> I know, I know, I know I what mean, you meant. I, I mean, it's, it's terrifying and it demonstrates well the point. I just don't want somebody to take that quote out of yeah, context. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> well, and, and because it is, it is the, is the use of an operation that most people did not track that created an unintended consequence that, that impacts everybody. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, and, uh, to go back to your earlier comment, if you you know you want to find a better word, 
for it than empire. I don't know that there is a better word for it than empire. I mean, yeah. the parallels between, you know, what happened with the fall of Rome, you know, the Roman empire and the, and what's happening now with the United States, like are somewhat eerie when you really look at it. And, and the Dutch and the English and many other. And yeah. one of the things that I find so fascinating is the link between war and debasement of the currency. Mm. And, you know, we see those things going kind of hand in hand. We've had this, I mean, since I was born, the, the United States hasn't not been in some active conflict, you know, which is kind of a shocking thing. Like there might've been periods of lull or periods of higher activity, you know, more violence, less violence, but it's, it's been going on for my entire life. And well, it's kind of, I mean, it's, it's fascinating that, you know, when Rome started debasing their currency, it was to fund ongoing wars. And in the past nations had to stop fighting a war when they could no longer afford to pay for it. And that's no longer the case. We can always we can always afford it by just printing more money because we are the world superpower, because we have this hegemony, and because we have this military that can sort of enforce, uh, in a lot of ways, the the use of our currency. At the end of the day, right. And the the alternative vision isn't that we don't defend ourselves. The alternative vision is that we realize that you cannot central plan an economy and you can't centralize centrally plan world peace that the world is too big and too complex that you have to be realistic about what you're actually able to do with your military. And that's just an immediate like, duh moment. And then you have to be kind of, you need to restrain the use of your military and maximize peace diplomacy and the avenues that actually create the outcomes that people want, that normal people want, not the, not Madeline Albright, not Raytheon, not, not the people who are invested in the system that perpetuates the, continuous overcommitment. Right. Uh, and that, and, and at the end of the day too, it puts all these servicemen in danger. Like, totally. like these guys who got injured and the guy died. I mean, like that's, that's a terrible thing. We should, we should be outraged that there is no plan in Syria. We should be outraged that we are giving re- weapons to Al Qaeda in Syria. We should be outraged about this, but unfortunately, you know, the, the American media has gotten to the place where it's kind of like, yeah, it's just a thing that happened. It just goes, it's at the bottom of the page of beat three, if in new, old newspaper terms. Right. And and what's on the front page is something like Trump being indicted on 34 identical charges of whatever it was, improper f- uh, filing of some expense for, I mean, I don't even... I don't even know. How do you, how do you characterize this, Henri? What's going what, on the, with Trump? The Trump thing? Yeah. Oh man. I, I mean, it, first of all, I mean like every U S president should, if they're, if you're going to arrest U S presidents, you know, it should be for these war crimes. Right. And I mean, if, if to, to think that what Trump is getting, you know, brought in for is some hush money paid to a porn star. It's just the, it's the most ridiculous th- reason of, uh, they've been investigating this guy nonstop. They've turned over every leaf and this is what they come up with. Um, it's impressive that yeah. he's actually that clean. Yeah. I mean, I can't remember who it was that said it. Uh, it might've been on Crowder's show. I think Nick DiPaolo, maybe he was a guest and he was like, uh, in fact, it might've been Crowder, but he was like, the guy runs a real estate company in New York. Like he has to have committed a misdemeanor at some point. Like right. shit, you commit a misdemeanor when you just try to rent an apartment in New York. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think Dave Smith was yeah, saying yeah, that. that was Dave Smith. Yeah. That was that Dave. Yeah. Okay. But on the criminality part of that, the average American commits three crimes a day. The average American? Yeah. What are those crimes? There are that many well, laws just, on the books. Just yeah. whatever. Yeah. If, if you trapped lobsters improperly, you know, that's yeah. a crime. Uh, there, there are so many rules and regulations in the book. 
and that's and that's part of the state mechanism, right? If you make if you uh, it was Lenin who said, give me a man, uh, even an innocent man, and I can find the crime Yeah, right? with enough time and pressure. You can get a you can get a confession or you can find some way in which they've broken some rule because the rules are just that many. So it that's impressive uh, on on that front. I I, I agree with. Yeah. <laughs> you well, on that. I mean, it's obviously you know, politically motivated. I mean they they want to they want to make him look bad and they want to probably prevent him from from being able to run. And uh, yeah, it's it's definitely banana republic type of shit. Well, it's it's also kind of a blowback, right? Like it's the same thesis as like they're attacking this and it's just going to create a, a mob of angry. Trump supporters that are just going to feel yeah. more rejuvenated. Yeah, well, I, mean, I was going to say it yeah, seems like it's, it's, it's only energized. Galvanized. At least, at least in the short term, it seems to be energizing. You know, Trump's chances of of not only winning the the nominee, but winning the whole thing. Um, but I don't know. There's a long time between now and, and the election. I do think what's also interesting is Trump, in some ways, did kind of bring this on himself with the the locker up rhetoric when he was running in 2016. Mm-hmm. You know, and back in those days, it was the people who were bringing these charges against Trump were the ones saying, well, this is just scary rhetoric. You know, we don't do that here. And and now now we're seeing it unfold. Um, That's a fair point. Yeah. Well, and we're, we're seeing it then blow back again. I mean, it's yeah. just ping ponging back and forth because now Republican DAs are reaching out to congressmen and women yeah. saying, hey, how do I how do we go after X, Y or Z, you know, Democrat? And it's only going to escalate right it seems like at this point that's the direction it's going it's just going to be retaliatory you know weaponization of the justice system at this point that's what's so uh, terrible about politics right it, it turns everything into a battle right there's no way to get to peace from there because you're in this escalatory political spiral um and i one of the things that you know alexis de tocqueville when he came to america and wrote his book uh, you know, was that how small a role compared to French society, Americans valued politics because ev- almost everything was outside of the political realm. Unlike a big unitary state like France, most of America was decentralized and community-based and civil society-based where you negotiated problems like, you know, adults rather than persecuting your opposition. The uh, I think the thesis that we've seen this huge growth in politics as we've seen, you know, of course, philosophically, there's a big idea part of that. But then also like, you know, it tangibly, we've just seen the massive growth in the state since the counter-revolution of the Woodrow Wilson era, uh, the progressive era. That is incentivizing and driving this fundamentally. That, that's that's what's sitting behind this is that politics has become the way we negotiate all pr- conflicts and problems rather than other solutions, which are there and abundant, but we don't we don't leverage them anymore. Because we've made the state too big and powerful, it creates the incentive to make everything about politics. Right. Well, and I think you pointed to it in a prior episode that the cultural um, approach to solving problems has just shifted so much over the course of time that now that's just our default mode is if there's a problem, the government should solve it. Mm -hmm. And it's totally worth it to go after your opposition and persecute them politically because they'll do it to you and all these other, you know, bad escalatory spirals. The question is, how do you break that? And I think you break that by saying, no, the, the goal is to de-emphasize the power of the state to empower the individual and to devolve these things back down so we don't have this crisis moment. Reduce the temperature, de-tribalize, those kind of concepts. Those are the things that we need to be emphasizing in order to get the anecdote to this spiral we're in. Otherwise, if we just keep feeding into it, it just becomes a problem. Um, I don't mean we, I mean we as American public. Oh, yeah. 
for sure. Call to action out there. If you're a Democrat, go hug a Republican. If you're a Republican, <laughs> go hug a Democrat. Or if you, if you suspect of some petty, you know, crime, uh, how about get the crime off the books rather than that? Or, you know, if you're a Republican, uh, are you going to maybe decriminalize sex work? Shots fired. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, just, I'm just saying, I'm not saying sex work's good for anybody or like that that's a positive industry or something like that for people in it, but criminalizing it definitely has a lot of negative outcomes and, and creating a black market for something makes it violent and dangerous. We've seen uh, that with the drug war. And if you're saying like the president should be able to pay for sex, right? But not somebody else, right? That's the Republican position right now. Is that what it is? Is that what it is? Because uh, you're like, this shouldn't be a crime, right? But Wait, do you are you are you now okay with that? I mean, like I, I'm well, confused. I think there's I think there's so many different things going on here, and there's so this is the hard part about it is like there are so many different versions of the truth, and it's mm. really hard to know which one right. is actually the truth. But I mean, some are saying that it never even happened, hmm. right? That there was no you know affair or whatever with with Stormy Daniels between Stormy Daniels and Trump, and I think he even denies it. Mm. And he's like, she's not the one, folks. She's not the one. You know, <laughs> horse face. I, 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 horse, horse face. Right. I, exactly. I will say on top of that is she signed a document in 2018 saying it never happened. Now, was she paid to say well, that? Well, but the other thing not, is right? that that Michael Cohen's lawyer said that Michael Cohen paid her out of his own pocket. Right. So it didn't even come from Trump directly himself. Hmm. It came from his attorney. But the, but and then the other piece of it, the, the crime here, apparently, allegedly, is that he he they accounted for it wrong. Hmm. They didn't itemize it correctly. And so somehow it's a campaign finance violation or something. I well, mean, or a tax and, violation, a tax yeah, violation. Yeah, That's also how they're trying to make it federal is because the well, campaign, the, if uh, they can say that it's a campaign fi- finance violation, then it kind of goes out of New York and it becomes this big federal thing. Right. Right. Mm. Wow. No. Meanwhile, you know, at a press conference, DA Alvin Bragg, who's bringing all these charges, uh, was asked what the charges actually were. And he said, well, the law doesn't require me to tell you, so right. I'm not going to. So he never actually right. so, even said what Trump was being uh, indicted for. Yeah. The, the thing that makes it not a misdemeanor is that he's doing this to cover up a bigger crime, which we're not going to tell you what that bigger crime was. I mean, it, it, the, <laughs> the whole case like looks just from an outside perspective, not as a Trump supporter or, or, you know, anti-Trump, it, it looks oh. bad. It just looks yeah, really Yeah, I mean, weak. even even like on CNN, you know, the, the legal analysts that they're bringing on who would typically be, you know, sympathetic to their persuasion, for the most part, are saying there's no case here. Exactly. And it's like, so really, to me, the, the sad part about it is like, what this feels like is a distraction that is only going to result in that political escalatory spiral, right? While Meanwhile, we've got conflicts going on around the world. We've got banking and financial issues that are going unsolved. We've got, you know, a, a more polarized political environment in the United States than we've ever had, and we're not paying attention and trying to fix the real systemic problems that we're facing, but we're just wrapped up in this circus trying to get Trump or not get Trump. He's innocent. He's guilty. It's just like, whatever. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I'm just, I'm a little over the whole Trump thing personally. I'll just, I'll say it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would get ready for him to be the nominee. Yeah. It's going to be Vivek. That's what yeah. it's going to be. Well, I mean, Vivek is interesting. He, he is sort of like the spare tire that the Republicans have in case, you know, somehow, you know, something happens to Trump, he goes to jail. I mean, he's, he's no spring chicken. I mean, you know, he could have a health problem or something. Vivek is, is he's as healthy as he's ever been. Uh, folks. He actually does like look a lot fitter than, than he did 
during his presidency. He look, people say that he's like lost weight. And, Less big mess. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He's probably got some of that Ozempic going on, right? Yeah. Uh, that, yeah. <laughs> that, that's one of the speculations. <laughs> oh, is yeah. it really? Yeah. <laughs> I was just kidding. <laughs> Of course. Yeah, no, I heard he went keto. He just goes to McDonald's and eats the burger without <laughs> the bone. Eats the beef out. <laughs> yeah. It's not a pretty uh, mental image, actually. <laughs> yeah, no, but Vivek is really interesting. He he reminds me kind of of sort of like the Republican version of Andrew Yang, and I, and I mean that as a compliment, as just he's somebody who's bringing uh, fresh energy, fresh ideas. Um, he's in, incredibly intelligent, and he's he's got a, a lot of things that – resonate with me that I've heard. I mean, I'm not, I'm not paying attention to him and watching all his videos, you know, that closely, but I've heard him talk about, you know, wanting to change the change things up at the fed. Um, he's not going far enough with, with that rhetoric in my opinion, but he's, he's also talking about ending various government, um, departments and, and programs. And, um, I mean, he, he wrote the book woke Inc. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, so, big anti ESG guy. He, he's got, he, he's got good messaging he, and he's a, he's a really good communicator. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'll be, I, I'm interested to see how he does in the primaries. His podcast with Jordan Peterson is really interesting because his entire message is America's a story that we've lost the plot to. I'm summarizing obviously where we don't know what America is. So we don't know how to articulate how to make it great. And I, I, I think, you know, as far as continuing that kind of dialogue with the American people about like, are we a thing together? And if so, what is it? I don't think you can answer that question that doesn't boil down to individualism and, you know, prosperity through freedom, hopefully. Uh, and if that's the direction we're going, I, I think that's a very positive development for the Republicans uh, to think carefully about like, okay, what what is... Are we about persons or are we about a message that we can all get behind? Are we about an individual or are we about like an idea and a philosophy that will allow us to build what we're doing? Um, and I, I think the, the political animal in me is skeptical that that's going to be successful. But I do think uh, Republicans who are careful thinkers in this space should try to amplify that voice because I think it's an important one for their for their what they're trying to do. Absolutely. Well, and there was another uh, person that joined the 2024 campaign on the democratic side this week uh, rfk jr threw his hat in the ring um and that was pretty recent i don't know if there's really much even from his camp about his platform but obviously he's made quite a name for himself in the world in uh being an anti-vaccine or vaccine safety advocate particularly with his work i believe it's children's health alliance don't quote me on that maybe you can look for me kyle um sorry i know you're pulling double duty i don't mean to throw throw extra curveballs at you but um, I think it's pretty fascinating. I mean, obviously, uh, first Kennedy to run for president in quite some time, right? And uh, interesting parallels between Kennedy's running back then, the state of the world, Kennedy's running now in the state of the world. Kind of interesting. Do you guys think, I mean, first of all, is is this very well precedented? Are there often uh, incumbent challengers? Yeah, challengers to the incumbent? Well, that's a good question, because I'm, I, I know, I'm pretty sure this is not the first time it's happened. Well, I'm I, sure it's not the first yeah. time, but the question is, is like, when does it matter the Kennedy brand so much, right? Um, the, the Democrats, I mean, to, they're a very controlled party from my perspective. I know a little bit about how the Republicans work on the nominee process because of our time in 2012 and uh, 2008 uh, with Ron Paul that um, 
super delegates for Democrats are a very interesting institution. I can't mm. imagine how the Democrat Party could have such an elite uh, approach to their um, to how they select for president. So I got to wonder if there's any chance at all there because of the dem- the institution itself, the Democratic being so right. rigid and hard. Well, you look at Bernie Sanders campaign, which yeah. had a ton of grassroots support, and he right. still got whacked at the at the. Well, the remember convention. the Debbie Wasserman Schultz stuff that happened, right? And right. That was the whole reason that Tulsi Gabbard had left the the Democratic Party, or at least her like vice chair position that she was in. Can you elaborate just, yeah, just, just a little bit for folks listening about Debbie I, I Wasserman Schultz? I don't remember. I don't remember exactly what happened, but there was some sort of weird shenanigans that went on with the superdelegate situation where like Bernie was basically a shoe in and then there just ended up being these like quick conversions like right at the end. I don't remember the exact details. This was 2016, 2015, right? That, yeah. that campaign. So mm-hmm. it's been a while. Yeah. Some funny yeah, business I, occurred though. I mean, I think your average Democrat voter would, would prefer to see a different ticket, but probably the, you know, behind the scenes, you know, people in charge really like this sort of sock puppet president that that they can run the show and and have him be just you know this animated you know sack of meat that crazy uncle joe yeah. another joke about ice cream you know uh, or something like that i mean it's really interesting to me that i mean i'm we're seeing more and more democrats come around having a look behind the curtain if you will at joe biden as president take the rose colored glasses off and just look at like his mannerisms and you know, the way he speaks and how inarticulate he is most times and how he says and does all these strange things that his team are current constantly scrambling to clean up in his wake. And it's like, I think most people are probably of the mind that there may probably shouldn't be a second Biden term, right? Like mm-hmm. he's just, I don't he's think RFK <laughs> is the guy that, that the average Democrat wants to vote for. Well, he, no, I think I he's considered think so anti-establishment at this juncture oh, because for sure. of the role in vaccine. But I mean, it's interesting because like, you know, the, the candidate name still matters. I mean, the largest voting block is still baby boomers and they grew up during the Kennedy era. Uh, and I, I don't think that's a, a, a small thing. It, it could make a difference. Yeah. Well, and I would say again, from our experience with uh, the Ron Paul campaigns, uh, primarily in 2012, uh, which is when I got so jaded with the political system because I saw how incredibly poorly he was treated in the media. I just pulled up RFK Jr. Uh, to to search right after I had seen that the announcement came out. And every article on the first page was, you know, anti-vaxxer RFK Jr., blah, 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 anti-vaxxer. Anti- He's, he has been Only completely labeled and is more than likely going to be entirely dismissed by the mainstream you know, the, the establishment legacy media, whatever you want to call it for that position alone. And I think that's going to be a tremendous headwind for him to gain broad support, particularly within the democratic party, Mm. but I could be wrong. Mm. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, potentially Swalwell or not, who's the, who's the governor of uh, California? Uh, Newsom. 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 I was going to yes. say, Swalwell's yeah. the guy that slept with the Chinese spy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank, He's thank. probably not going to run. <laughs> but the, mean, then Newsom's again, name gets tossed out a little bit as somebody who's, who's you know, going to throw his hat in the ring. Um, he strikes me like like the liberal Ron DeSantis. He's, you know? well, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I, if I just see sort of like out, in, but like he's, a, he's, he's just like slick. A, and, he is very slick, yeah. yeah. And I, I think he's got... Uh, more more game than than republicans uh would would recognize it probably a great way to raise money a tremendous amount of votes got out of california i mean there's yeah 
I mean, and he's a handsome dude who's very articulate. So I think it's no, he's not a, he's no joke. But if I, the, I think my guess is that the Democrats would probably be like, yeah, that's nice. Gavin, wait four more years. You're young, you know, um, we need to wait until you're exceedingly old before you run so that (laughs) we can control you in your senile years. (laughs) But I'm not sure that he wouldn't be just on board with their establishment. Anyways, I mean, look at the way he ran California. Look at the, look at what's happened. I mean, are they still oh, locked disaster. down? Oh, I know. Jeez. Probably. Yeah. I, <laughs> I think they just like last week removed mass mandates. Um, You're yeah. kidding. You're actually kidding. No, I think it was pretty recent. Yeah, I'm no, going to have to fact it, check it, it was It was within recent weeks. I remember Seriously? this too. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. It's because wow. it was like certain, certain types of employees and stuff like that. Like not everywhere though, like hospitals or something, right? Or no, it was like certain employees at like events and things like that still were required to wear masks. Like, like the public wasn't, but it was, I, I don't know the exact details. Those but poor wow. people. Yeah. All the, all the surfs need to continue wearing masks. That was one. Do you guys remember that? Oh yeah, the uh, the galas, and you have all these celebrities without mm. their mask on, while all the like regular people are taking pictures. They got to have masks on, and they're yeah. serving them food, and they got to have the masks on. That I don't know. I don't know how someone can identify with the word Democrat and democracy so strongly, and then be like, "Oh yeah, that seems totally fine to me." Like that. The I'm not in a. I'm not a equalitarian, right? But I am an egalitarian. I think people are made equal. No one's better than anyone else. And that whole idea that you're going to wear masks, you're going to require all the day, day laborers to wear a mask, but not you because you're wealthy and famous and beautiful and you need your picture taken is uh, repulsive. Completely. And I can't believe there isn't a more like, oh, you're in a picture like that. You're in trouble sort of reaction from those people. Totally. I, I, well, it, I mean, it's so parallel to the climate ideology that says, Oh, we're going to fly around the world, go to conferences <laughs> to tell you how you're living your life wrong and you need to be more green while emitting how many, you know, tons of CO2 with their private jets. It's like, it's just so elitist. It's disgusting, but somehow people still just put up with it. I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm all for private jets, but I just, I just hate the finger wagging at uh, don't Africa for trying to create an industry and say like, Oh, just melt steel with, you know, solar panels <laughs> it's just like <laughs> yeah. what, are we, what are we doing here yeah all right you're gonna say oh you develop but just like skip all of the things that we did and develop right into a in post-industrial society it's absolutely ridiculous it's and a pipe dream and uh makes people poor it's terrible yeah uh, and then doing that while being wealthy and preaching everybody with such moral certitude is yeah. quite frustrating uh, I have two quick things here. One is that Henri's right. It was last week that the changes happened. Was April, Yay! April, <laughs> April 2nd. <laughs> but also going back to the Debbie Wasserman Schultz thing. Um, it, so this was when the WikiLeaks dump happened. That's right. Yeah. And yeah. and same same time period where like Seth Rich died outside the DNC and all that. It was collusion with Debbie Wasserman Schultz as the DNC chair with the Hillary Clinton campaign. That that was the big thing. And she was asked, she was demanded to step down and resign yeah. from her chairmanship. Got it. And it was I like just, another lifetime ago. Seriously. Yeah. 2016. Yeah. <laughs> it was a different world then. I do want to say, since we've invoked the Clinton name a few times, that none of us are suicidal. <laughs> we all love our lives, okay? <laughs> uh, oh, you got to do it. You can never be too safe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think I think actually you got to be careful about using that word for terms of service. So we're not trying to unalive ourselves. Right. Uh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Oh, I fr- I, we need the bleep button. You need the uh, bleep button. I'll have to just do it in post. It's fine. Um, I want to live. I love to live. 
well, let's, I want to bring it back to this Texas crypto bill because I think this is a super cool thing. That's this happening. is our white pill right here. This is our white pill. Good things uh, can happen, guys. Yes, good things can happen. So it relatively breaking news today, Texas, the Texas legislature has introduced a bill that would uh, essentially build the framework for a gold-backed digital currency issued by the state of Texas, which is being done in the framework of sort of undermining the Federal Reserve's stranglehold on the currency by, by putting the state in charge of their own, their own currency, which is, I think, a novel perspective. There have been a lot of efforts throughout the past hundred years to try to minimize or at least open up the, the Federal Reserve to some scrutiny, to some public oversight from Congress, or to even bring it to an end, because I think that we all at this table agree that it should be brought to an end. But this is a novel approach to that, more of a grassroots approach. Um, Kyle, I want to turn to you because you're a resident crypto degen. What are your thoughts on this? Have you had a chance to to look into it at all? I have not looked into it at all. That's not I, helpful I, at I all. literally got, it got it sent to me like 30 minutes before we started recording. But what I will say is there are there are cryptocurrencies that are backed by gold. And I know Paxos has run amok with the SEC recently. Um, none of this was, you know, there's legislation. There's no legislation behind these things or anything like that. But, you know, like this does exist and has existed. Um, I would be curious to see how where this goes, because this would be the kind of more decentralization of the market around currencies. So that'd be cool. Yeah. yeah. So there, there's this precedent for state banks, right? That's an interesting one that people don't know about. Is it North or South Dakota has a state bank? Uh, there's precedent for digital currencies that are backed by a hard asset. Uh, and that's, there's a lot of unique ways to combine the digital asset to the physical world that, that tie them directly together. Um, and then additionally that, I think it's an interesting move by a state to, it, it wouldn't, there's not without precedent. During the Great Depression, uh, various different Western states actually issued their own dollars because of deflation, there were no dollars. Uh, so they started issuing their own dollars in order to try to kickstart local economies so that someone had something to trade as a medium of exchange. So I, uh, I think this is a good move from the state legislature of Texas, and I think it's something definitely to watch and um, hopefully spread to other states as, at minimum, your backstop. At a minimum, you have something to transition to that already exists, that already regular, that already can be mass adopted very quickly, like, like a cryptocurrency could. Um, uh, in the state, if you wind up with a very inflationary environment or a very deflationary environment. Yeah. I mean, those, those who know me know I'm not a big fan of, uh, Bitcoin, but I do think, um, gold backed or commodity backed cryptocurrencies are sort of the inevitable future of the monetary system. I'd prefer to see it come out of the market rather than out of, you know, state governments, even if it's the smaller, you know, local state governments. But I will say the the type of backing that you want to see, it's it's not enough for it to just be backed. It has to be redeemable as well. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to go somewhere, exchange your currency and say, give me my money back. And that's how currency and, and money are supposed to work. You know, the whole the whole problem with, with the debasement of currency is that it, it becomes less attached to the backing that, that you can't, you know, you get a run on a bank because of, you know, there's, there's too many dollars circulating. There's not enough gold backing it and people can't redeem it. It's the redeemability that really matters. The other thing to note would be as long as we live in the, uh, 
under the dollar regime, if Texas does this, um, then Gresham's law applies. And so you would, if you have the ability, you know, Gresham's law is often stated as a, you know, good money or bad money drives out good. Um, which, you know, so to think about it, if you have, um, the, the, this was first observed when we were, 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 when gold was more commonly circulating. And so people had gold and silver coins. Um, if you had really nice newly minted gold coins, you would prefer to hold on to those. Whereas like the ones that were more worn down and had less gold in them, you would circulate those. Cause that's, you would rather part with that and, and save the good money. So if, the gold back redeemable currency is out there. Why would you spend it if you had the option to to spend, you know, this depreciating, crappy money? That, Federal Reserve note. Right. That's so. interesting. So you think that it would almost have, uh, it, it wouldn't be circulated as heavily. Well, and and until the the you know we see the end of of the dollar regime, or until the the dollar also becomes backed by gold and redeemable in gold. Uh, yeah, Gresham's law would would drive out. It, you would you would use it as a savings, right? And you would spend the the money that you'd rather part with. That's interesting. What's uh, interesting there too is if you can make it so that um, you have an, if if you get to an inflationary environment, you have buckets full of dollars in order to do basic commerce, or where the price increase is so radical, but then you see underneath that there's a price that's much more stable. You know what I mean? That's that's the competitive situation I think people are trying to anchor to to give people a backstop into something else if you get into that place. So that saying that, are you saying that goods would have two prices, one for Federal Reserve notes and one in uh, Texas bucks or Texas, whatever they're going to yeah, be called? <laughs> exactly. If, if, the, if you got to that place because people are actually fleeing from the dollar, that's what happened in the Weimar Republic. People right. started trading in other kinds of alternative currencies. That's what happens all over African republics right now. People actually trade in cell phone minutes. Uh, so you'll see prices that are in the local currency, but then you'll actually on the marketplace actually barter for cell phone minutes mm. as an alternative currency. So there's lots of um, ways where competitive currencies can work out that way, but it has to be a very specific set of market conditions. One of the big things with this gold stuff too is it, a lot of it's going to depend on what blockchain you're building on because you know at the end of the day, you could just end up having executive order 6102, which was FDR seizing all the gold and nationalizing the gold. Yeah. You could just end up having that go down. And, and at that point, it's like, it doesn't even matter how verified your gold is on the blockchain. <laughs> like they just go to where all the gold is being stored, which is going to be in banks. Well, the, the oh yeah. this is a detail that maybe we don't have the answer to right at the second, but if it were a state issued currency and the state was holding the gold, could the federal government repatriate the gold from the state? <laughs> well, yeah. Then you get, end up getting kind of like a nullification states rights argument. That right. Yeah. Which is kind of, lawsuit. kind of the exciting thing about it, right? Is this, this is sort of like a, a nullification idea and, and obviously something to preempt or counteract the, uh, the eventual fed based CBDC, right? Um, central bank digital currency. At least it seems like that's built into their, their thinking around why they would want to have something like this. Yeah. Right. And I actually think it's, it's a strategically sound move too. Cause if you're saying the fed comes out with their central bank digital currency, say, where do you have that in Texas? But it's gold and backed. it's backed by gold. Yeah, I mean the other one thing I'd like to see out of it, and I, I looked at the article, I didn't notice a couple other things. Uh, you want maximum anonymity. Anonymity. I'm anonymity. Anonymity. Yeah. Uh, Easy want, for you to say. You want that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so what allows you to tumble the coin, uh, for example, where it does a swap and and you you can move coins in and move coins out that 
and then and they can actually make it oh because truly- some with with cryptocurrencies a common uh criticism for example of bitcoin is that it's easy to typically tell where it's been and if it's right you know a brand new Bitcoin or if it's been coin joined or they, they have these methods right. through which yeah. you can make it which, sort of anonymous. Which is what happened with Tornado Cash is um, the guy that created Tornado Cash, which is one of these coin mixers, is sitting in a jail right now and somewhere in Europe um, because Be- uh, because the North Korean hacker group may have funneled money through through their through Tornado Cash. Right. Gotcha. How dare he offer a service on the marketplace that some bad guy used? I mean somewhat similar to what's the kid's Ross name? Albright. Ross Albright. That's yeah. right. Right. Silk road. So right. yeah, I, I, um, yeah. So getting to that place where you can ensure that, uh, using that coin. So that's one of the reasons why I'm a little bit skeptical if they try to start their own blockchain, right. Rather than piggybacking off of an existing one that has a decentralized structure that's already pri- has a private, you know, or a public reason to exist. Right. As opposed to they say, we're going to hire a bunch of crypto developers and come up with Texas coin. You know, like that's that's probably I don't think a very good idea. Um, and then next off of that, uh, allowing for, um, you know, low transaction fees and making sure that the that there is a market built into here, not just like a government Excel sheet of balances accounts, which would not which is what a central bank digital currency is, because then it makes it all transparent, makes it not anonymous, makes it so that you can't so that they can then use it to monitor you and um, control you. Yeah. Yeah. So I, 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 if you can exchange it out easily for other kinds of c- currency of equal value, like hot swaps and stuff like that, that would also be an additional feature that I would want to see in something like that in state legislative policy, because it allows you to say, okay, that's, I don't longer trust the Texas state government. So I'm going to move this into some other asset uh, that values to me and giving the consumers those kind of choices. Um, I think that would be that would be a heck of a, a lot better than our current situation. Definitely. One, I would hope that other states would follow suit and yeah. start to introduce similar legislation and, and start to figure this out, you know, in a decentralized way, because it seems like that has the potential to better serve the people of those states than, you know, all of us just holding these devaluing Federal Reserve notes. Yeah. The question is, the other side is, is tax reconciliation at the end, right? If you're holding gold and it appreciates in value, technically own tax, capital gains tax when you sell it, Right. And the taxable event outcome is one of the major disincentives to adoption of cryptocurrency because it's, it's just cumbersome, mm-hmm. right? Um, Isn't there a crypto bill in Montana's legislature right now? Uh, yeah, there are, there are a couple. Yeah, actually, uh, interestingly, the uh, forbidding local governments from discriminating against crypto just got voted down in the House. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, hopefully it'll get reconsidered. Discriminating in the sense that they... Missoula banned cryptocurrency mining. Oh, gotcha. Really? Yeah. Mining. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. It's yeah. not green enough, right? Yeah, because, because, and uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's a weird dynamic over there. Uh, so no, it's, it's that it also forbids the public service commission, which is the energy monopoly uh, regulator from discriminating against it. Basically saying, Hey, they're like any other business. You can't, it's not up to you to decide which businesses get to exist. Oh, so they're, they were charging like predatory rates, electric electricity rates. Nah, the P- public service commission. I don't, I'm not aware of any actual accusation that they've done anything wrong here. Oh, it's sure. just preemptively saying you can't do that and then additionally that for missoula in other all localities in montana says you can't decide for people that their business doesn't have a right to exist gotcha uh, their business being cryptocurrency yeah. mining yeah. got it yeah but that got voted down we got voted down but it looks like it's gonna get reconsidered so cool. we'll see there's some dynamics we're, we're entering the part uh, of the session where everyone just starts getting mad at each other and shooting each other's bills down really <laughs> dramatically so uh, well it seems we'll like the zoning bills are doing well 
Yeah, uh, we're going to get into this. Huh? I mean, okay. I don't know. <laughs> I, I love it. No, no. Um, yes, kind of. Uh, we definitely had a lot of boiling down. So we originally had a quadruplex, triplex, and duplex build. That looks like it's just going to be duplex. We'll probably get, I, I have really good hopes for the ADU, that's accessory dwelling unit bill. Um, and then we have minimum lot size. We're trying to revive and bring that back. It's another major constraint that really impacts, especially kind of that space between urban and rural, that kind of area that's often governed by minimum lot size. Mm-hmm. Uh, and although, otherwise also just layers on top of non-zoned areas and zoned areas that prevent uh, increasing amounts of uh, people to buy and build homes. Yeah. And I think just to tie this into why people should care, I mean, this directly affects uh, property owners. It gives property owners greater rights to develop their property, to provide uh, housing for people that need it, mm-hmm. which is going to be both uh, more homes to purchase and also homes to rent, which hopefully with greater supply of places to rent, you know, rental prices uh, go down in the state of Montana uh, and everyone just kind of generally gets more freedom to, to suit, you know, satisfy the needs of their communities from a housing perspective. Yeah. Central planning doesn't work. Even central planners made by people who have the name planner after the name, like city planners uh, still can't know the actual preferences of people. Uh, So they, they tend to not, actually anticipate the changes in demand or the changes in supply that are happening on the ground. The market mechanism does a better job of that. So the idea is that we decentralize that to the property owner so that the property owner can respond to the incentives and redeploy their property in ways that mutually benefit others. I love it. Yeah. And prescriptive zoning is inherently racist, but we won't go there. Yeah. <laughs> also, on this that. Episode. <laughs> also that. Missoula actually just came out with a big thing. It was like, oh, by the way, our zoning's racist. We should probably get rid of it. They said that? Yeah, just like a couple weeks ago. Good for them. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, hopefully we see uh, we see some successes, some additional success in the legislative session. Yeah. I mean, uh, there are a whole bunch across the country, too. I mean, we got school choices sweeping everywhere. Utah just passed education savings accounts, universal. Um, a whole bunch of other states are getting more education reform. So that we, we talk, told the story a couple months ago about how a lot of states are set up for that. It is happening, man. That's awesome. Texas is on the docket. It looks like Texas is going to happen quite, very possibly. Um uh, everybody but us uh, will be doing something pretty substantial in that space. And then and then there's a bunch of other ones. Like uh, we have a tax increment finance reform, huge corporate welfare scheme uh, that we hope to be able to reform. We've got a good shot at that, I think. Um, tons of tons of good movement on the state level that people, I hope we, we should probably do a deep dive on sometime. We definitely should. Yeah. yeah. Maybe uh, we'll do a legislative session wrap up once it's all concluded yeah. and once you're no longer in the weeds. Just a <laughs> giant white pill. Just a giant white pill. So Here's like, what we good did. Good things are happening, guys. I know yes. I know there was a lot of doom and gloom all over the place, but man, is it there? Yeah. Let's talk about Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah, let's, let's, <laughs> let's, let's do, do a video. Let's do a reaction here. I've, I've yet to see this. I, I like to, uh, it's going to be a fresh reaction. Out of Joe. I know. I, well, you know, I don't want to spoil it. There's a list of top ranking medical professionals. Let's take a look. I'm talking here. about, excuse me, medical Dr. Peter McCullough. No, no, no. I want to go through what happens here. This is, this is the problem I mean, the, the consensus. The consensus. Okay. I just medical want, professional. I want you to. Not, because no. the medical is so huge. I can find you an astrophysicist who is sure we've been visited the by aliens. Was, That's not the problem was, the, the problem was the scientific method died here. And this is the point I want to make. I, my it point, died a death here. And I need you to help me save it. Because Dr. Peter McCullough is the leading cardiologist. I don't care if titles don't matter here. It's, but what they, should they matter, matter, what, what matters should matter, consensus. what should matter was that the no. consensus was not allowing to the table. Then you bring that person here and have this conversation I have. with them. Okay, I have. so you don't have to have the conversation with me. But I want, I want science, and, and so here's what we have. We have 
Peter, we have Peter McCullough, world-renowned heart doctor, saying, I am seeing a rise in myocarditis because of this vaccine. We have the leading ICU, second most published science, uh, Paul Merrick. I'm just, I, hear me out here. Hear me out. I know you, I know, all right? These have all been on my show. Dr. Robert Malone, part of the inventing factor behind the mRNA vaccine. All these people have been censored. They were shut down. They were kept from talking to the people in Washington. Johnny and was putting out the data. Dr. J, I'll show you. Dr. J. Bhattacharya, Dr. Sinetra Gupta, Dr. Martin Kohler, Oxford University, Harvard School of Medicine, Stanford School of Medicine. They put together the Great Barrington Declaration, which was an approach towards this to say, let's do protect that simple, small group that we know needs to be protected and figure out a way the rest of us can establish a herd immunity around them. And the NIH, who's supposed to be objective on this, we now have internal email because this is what I do. I actually put in FOIA requests. We know that this is what Francis Collins said about those people before even talking to them. There needs to be a quick and devastating published takedown of the premise being brought by these scientists. That was the approach to science. No other science can be allowed in here. You started this out by saying every challenge should come in. Every way to say that we don't agree with the hypothesis. Maybe these people say you don't need the vaccine. There's a way through this. Or we should be tactical with the vaccine. All of these people were kept out of the all conversation. I can, all I can and you were there. wanting me to sign on to a, a, a social contract where the scientific method isn't being used. All, okay, I... That list of highly pedigreed yeah. medical professionals that you are citing, yeah. I'm not interested in medical pedigree. I'm interested in medical consensus, in scientific consensus. The moment someone says, well, I'm of this highfalutin school or this, that's like, okay, that means they're going to say something that goes against the consensus, and they want to use that to help other people follow what it is they say. I'm just saying you need someone who represents a medical consensus here, to have that conversation with. We had a medical consensus around a product that we knew nothing about, and a medical consensus around a virus that told us they knew nothing about. They kept telling us we know very little about it. Mm -hmm. So why was there a medical consensus that was keeping out renowned scientists from the conversation when they were telling us on television we don't know a lot about this virus we're trying to figure it out scientists that were on the ground that were dealing with patients were being censored were being shut down their youtube channels were being shut down their linkedins were being shut because down because the individual scientist does not matter we started this conversation on that very but fast. But the scientific so method does. Yes, you know, of course it does. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think we got the gist of the video. That. Like, so every so when I saw this earlier, um, it just reminds me of you know when Einstein published his papers on relativity in 1905. The 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 consensus of the physics community was was very hostile towards it. And there was uh, a book uh, published, you know, roughly 30 years later. I mean, there was a, a raging debate over Einstein's ideas and a book published 30 years later, a hundred authors against Einstein was the title of this book. And, you know, so the, the, the consensus of the scientific community did not come around to Einstein's ideas until decades after he published the, the papers but you know he was he was proven eventually proven correct, and we all understand Einstein. You know is the uh, the cliche of you know what a smart person is, right? And so to hear the most you know public intellectual from from the physics community say something like the individual doesn't matter; it's the consensus that matters is just so rich in irony and it, it really terribly antithetical 
to the philosophy of science. So science Absolutely. didn't just show up, right? It, did, it wasn't like a thing that we've always had. It's a philosophy about how to discover truth, a method of philosophy. It assumes certain things about humans in our imperfections. It assumes that we don't, we have emotions that overwhelm our reason. And so what we want is a dialogue of, of, of accountability where I show my work, I show my hypothesis, I show my the experimental results, and then I give that away. And then we allow people to, you know, work on those. And then we arrive at truth by the, by it rising to the top. When I did, took, uh, when I majored in philosophy in college, I took a course on uh, the scientific method, uh, the philosophy of it. And it was awesome. It was a great course taught by a very smart professor. And we did not talk about consensus once the entire course that I can remember. It was a little while ago, but not once. I did not hear scientific consensus as a method for determining scientific truth until 2020. Yeah. Did you guys? Well, I, I mean, you know, like Galileo, you know, he, he had to uh, oppose scientific consensus you know every like, major <laughs> advancement in science right, is done by an individual state, standing to, to a crowd state science is about the consensus, consensus that supports or you know controlling or manufacturing a consensus to support their agenda yes. um uh, who was the character in atlas shrug was it dr dr robert statler i think was the the state scientist this is what Every time I saw Fauci on TV is, what, is who I thought about. <laughs> and he comes out and he says, Reardon Steel is yeah. not going to work and it's terrible and all that kind of stuff. There's lots of, uh, you know, historical figures who are like that uh, across, you know, lots of, for example, we thought flight was impossible. That was 100 years away. We, the, the, the federal government, for example, invested, you know, what would be today's worth of hundreds of millions of dollars into a state-sponsored scientist to design the first airplane. He failed and then said publicly, we're a hundred years away. And then two weeks later, the white Wright brothers, a couple, you know, rednecks with from a bike company to flew for the first time. So like the, the entire story and I, of, of science and of human progress is so often the story of an individual standing up to a crowd and saying what's true and being proven right. And to lose that because you are so committed to a philosophy of public health that says that it ipso facto, it must be true that the consensus is what is what we should design our public policy on. That is that is, sits on top of a whole bunch of premises about politics and human nature and science and, and, and just diving on the science part. That is completely antithetical to to. Um, oh, man, I'm forgetting uh, Francis Bacon and the scientific revolution of the enlightenment that we that that science came from. And then even better articulated, the ideal for science from our, from my point of view is Robert Polanyi's The Republic of Science, which dives into this very dynamic that there's, it's very fascinating, right? Because in Enlightenment, we had two ideas that came out simultaneously, deeply connected to one another. One, without any planning by government, people can satisfy each other's needs by in, in a free market that allows people to serve one another and it creates more wealth by doing that. That idea by uh, Adam Smith, Wealth of Nations, 1776, publishes a book that basically says, hey, there's, between countries and within countries, there's this, di this interesting dynamic, and, it's, and it has these features. Simultaneously to that, we said, if you have this public process where you allow knowledge to act as a market signal of hypothesis and uh, a thesis, hypothesis, and the actual you know, experimental results, 
you can create more knowledge and, and signal within the reputation of science that there's this interesting parallel between freedom and the free market and what it provides and uh, freedom of speech. John, uh, uh, St- John Stuart Mills on Liberty has this amazing uh, way of articulating freedom of speech as if it was a market to discover truth. Science is just that on a more systematic basis that, that, that anchors into real material reality because you're doing experimental science, right? If you're doing science. The, the interesting thing here is that we've completely, uh, because of the progressive era, we pretty much said, well, and during the counter-revolution, which I'm now just going to call it that. I'm not going to call it a progressive era anymore. That's my new, my, my year's resolution. During the counter-revolution of the Woodrow Wilson area and post, we decided what's best to run society because it's too chaotic and too competitive and too all these things is that if we just put exper- experts in charge, they can run society by consensus, mm-hmm. by the consensus of the elites who rule us. And that is completely against science, like against the, the basic philosophy of science as advocated during the Enlightenment. It's a completely new way to think about it. It's much more closest to the way the Soviet Union thought about science and how they decided that, you know, material advancement would happen by political edict first that fed the political machine. Right. So what, what, what it drives me crazy about this is you have someone who I actually really like. I, I like Neil deGrasse Tyson has since 2020 totally given over to this philosophy of science by consensus. And even if you watch his documentaries from previous, all of his documentaries are about Galileo and Einstein and all these people standing up to the interests yeah. of B to say something true about science. That's, that's the noble um, story of science done well. And, and to do that just because he has a political commitment is a betrayal of his own values. Absolutely. And what, you heard nonstop, people saying the phrase, trust the science, trust the science. What they really mean is trust the consensus. And what that really means is do what we say. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this is, you know, Max Planck, he, he has the quote of, you know, scientific advancement happens one death at a time. And meaning that as these old ways of thinking die, as, as the people who, who were the old consensus, who are resisting these, these emerging ideas that are uprooting prior consensus they have to they have to go away some some way or another and you know younger people who are who have grown up with the new ideas and are used to them will will one day replace them mm-hmm. um but it's yeah it's it's crazy because we we have a essentially like a cult around this idea of well we trust the science these other guys don't trust the science and it's obviously nothing to do with science it's just do what the state tells you to do and if if you don't, you know, to the gulag with you. Yeah. Well, that, and, that, and, and to be fair, that applies, you know, for my friends who are more vaccine support types. I'm trying to be neutral here. If if the data supports the vaccine, I mean, have at it. Go go for it. You know, do your thing. And you know, like make that argument. Just don't decide that the entire political apparatus has already decided for your favor post hoc after the fact. You know, after you've already decided what the what the end policy goal is, go back and then work your books in order to justify that goal and then say that's science. That's not science. Mm. His perspective had such hubris that you guys have highlighted so eloquently. I think it's really interesting, though, that he never talks about how the consensus can and has been wrong a lot, like verifiably so in the past. It's not as if the peer review process is beyond reproach. Peers get shit wrong all the time. Like what I forget the name of the Alzheimer's research that was done. This guy basically made up his research, made up the data. It got peer reviewed and it got passed and published 
And then a bunch more research was done based on this completely faulty research. And we didn't find it out until pretty recently. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's only one example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, but I think it's interesting what you talk about, like the, the, the process, the philosophy of science, you put it so, so beautifully and so well, but the problem that I see with where we currently are is that science is currently captured. It's captured by government, right? I mean, so much science, like you said, is state funded. Just look at the basic human incentives here. What are you going to do? Are you going to publish a contradictory uh, finding from some research if you know that the entity that cuts your paychecks and and gives you million-dollar grants to keep your lab alive wants to see the other thing come true? You're going to rewrite or, or, you know, self-censor research that doesn't suggest what it is that whoever it is that's cutting your checks wants to see. And unfortunately, that's the world we find, we find ourselves in. And so many people are bought into the consensus narrative that they're unwilling to look outside of the mainstream, even at extremely relevant data and extremely relevant research that, that takes place. And, mm-hmm. and that to me is where we get this bifurcation in truth. You have one column of people that believe that one thing is perfectly true and the other thing is perfectly false and vice versa. And we no longer have the ability to cross this divide, or at least it's very, very challenging to cross that divide, to find the nuggets of truth in the other, the opposing narrative. Mm -hmm. Adding on to what you said there about the peer reviewed studies. If you remember back in 2018, the uh, grievance studies hoaxes, uh, James Lindsay, Peter Pergosian, Mm -hmm. Helen Pluckrose, right? Where they basically demonstrated as long as you just say the right shibboleths and you give what the peer reviewers want to hear, uh, you'll get awards for your research. Even if you didn't do any actual study, you're just making things up. Um, things about like dog humping in, in Oregon <laughs> state parks. Basically rewrote one of the chapters of Mein Kampf. Yes. In, yeah. That was yeah. the same thing. Yeah. They just replaced uh, Jewishness with whiteness. Yeah. And the, they, and they got exemplary writing. Yeah. 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 So uh, that, that demonstrates how broken the social sciences are and, and, yeah. Um, it's, it's what you're saying. It's, it's, it's Hard actually science. worse than that. Yes. Right. The, the fact that gender studies is broken. I don't think, I think a lot of people are like, well, wow. <laughs> Was <laughs> it ever really not broken? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the, the fact that we don't really do confirm like confirmation of scientific experimentation anymore, that that's D and so size. I think that's absolutely true in economics. There's a huge replication problem that's been around for like a decade now that no one's, everyone oh, man. talks Econ- about, but never actually gets into or tries to solve economics papers. Yeah, it, there's, there's some good stuff out there, but for the most part, it's, it's a lot of economists trying to, um, you know, replicate essentially themselves as statisticians and, and they're really bad at it. And it, they're not doing actual economics as in, you know, praxeology, you know, logical deduction from first principles. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, that's, that's what, you know, the real heart of economics is. Right. Um, but yeah, most, most of the stuff out there, unless you're looking at like Stephen Levitt, uh, is, is garbage in the economics field. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's such a challenging problem of how do you, how do you separate state and science? How do you create better incentives so that scientists have get rewarded for checking the work of other scientists? So you actually build real knowledge. And I, and I think, I think a larger private research and less public research is probably the solution to that forget the book, but there was, uh, Tom Woods talks about it a lot. We should definitely plug it. 
uh, sometime. Which, but which one are you? Uh, about? It basically, it's a it's a history of how uh, scientific research was privately funded. Kyle, you looking on it? Uh, the background of how, uh, and I think I could describe it directly the trade-offs between public research and private research and how one of the reasons why America was so competitive throughout the industrial revolution is unlike Europe, we mostly funded science privately while Europe had a very centrally top-down, you know, court system for science. And uh, as Murray Rothbard put it, pointed out the court religious figure has been replaced with the court economist and the court scientist. And uh, they exist not to do knowledge. They exist to justify Mm -hmm. state power. Yeah, many of the the you know most important scientific discoveries were not you know from some person sitting in the ivory tower. It was you know people independently. I mean, you know, Einstein wrote his papers while he was a clerk in a patent office, and I mean, Louis Pasteur, you know, like, was a farmer, and mm-hmm. or you know, some of these guys were were priests or you know different you know doing different things. And, getting getting funding either from themselves or from you know wealthy benefactors but um yeah well, we, the question is to me is the sanctity of pure research for research's sake free of politics or free of bias if funded by a private party more so than pre- funded by a government entity that private party funding that research can have all the bias in the world as well. So does that really solve the problem of the money dictating the outcome of the science? If the scientist is incentivized to want to get future funding, I I didn't find the name of the book because all I had to go off was Tom Woods talks about it sometimes. I'm sorry, (laughs) but I will say something else that's interesting in here, just in regards to the hard sciences and the corruption and saying the right shibboleths is that uh, Greta Thunberg did just receive an honorary degree in theology. So oh. are you, is well, that a joke? No, no, no. That's, that's very true. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, she is the I, leader of a religious I, movement. I, that's so, exactly. Yeah. I was like, that's gotta be a Babylon B headline, isn't it? <laughs> wow. Well, fantastic. Uh, those of you still listening are nerds. Congratulations. <laughs> oh, we did kind of go along, didn't we? That's all right. You know, we had a really good conversation and I'm glad that we went into what we did because I, you know, I had this very conversation with a friend of mine, um, not long ago and, it's, it's just fascinating how, how far apart people can be in terms of what they believe or understand to be true. Believe is maybe not the right word, but you know, what, what they observe to be true or what they are willing to observe to be true. What do you got, David? The Economic Laws of Scientific Research, Terrence Keeley. Mm. Great book. The Economics of Scientific Research? The Economic, Economic Laws of Scientific Research. We will make sure that's in the show notes so you can check it out if you would like to, as well as any other books that we mentioned. Any final thoughts before we sign off, boys? Oh, man. I, I, I don't know. I, I was thinking about the white pill because you mentioned before we started uh, how, how, you know, you're reading it now. I, I recently read it. It's an excellent book. Uh, we, we brought it up on the show before. But there are some good chapters in there talking about, you know, state-funded science in the Soviet Union compared to what was going on in the United States. There's also some... Uh, our, our conversation earlier about Biden being a, you know, kind of controlled apparatus of, of the, you know, sort of people behind him um, really reminded me of uh, the way that Nikolai Ceausescu was described as, as this sort of uh, phenomenon of incompetence and mediocrity being rewarded in, in a socialist system versus, you know, um, achievement and excellence being rewarded in a, in a market system. So, 
I'll just plug White Pill again one more time. Buy it um, on LibertyPortal.com. Yeah. Michael Malice. Michael Malice, the White Pill. Yeah. And if you know Michael Malice, get him on the show. Yeah. <laughs> love to chat with him. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, obviously, you know, find us, like us, uh, share these videos. Uh, please get on there and share the shorts. Those are doing so great. Joe's doing an amazing job, but I really hope that you would help spread this podcast around because we really want to help people make sense of the news to kind of bring this together into cohesive philosophy so people don't feel like it's just floating chaos. You're just a puppet of larger powers and systems that you can't control. Uh, these things can make sense if we just take the time, dive into it, and that's what the service we want to offer to you. And hopefully we can help your friends and neighbors do the same. Beautiful. Thank you for that plug. I will I will echo that and say, uh, yeah, wherever you get podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Rumble as well. Uh, we do appreciate likes, follows, shares, and all that stuff. Kyle, thank you so much for your hard work back there. Single-handed without Evan today. We appreciate you. It was double duty. It was rough. <laughs> you did a great job. Hopefully the edit looks good. Save me the work, all right? Uh, there might be some things you have to do in post. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks for being honest. We appreciate you for watching, guys. See you next time. Thanks for tuning in to the Liberty Portal podcast. For more episodes, news, and Liberty-focused content, visit libertyportal.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you liked what you heard on the show, we appreciate you sharing it with your friends and giving us a review on your podcast platform of choice.